Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Waterfowl. Hello and welcome to another edition of the North American Waterfowler Podcast. My name is Elliot and today I am going to bring to you a guest from the Atlantic coast as we've been popping around North America and talking to different individuals about their season, the migration, and also just whatever questions I find interesting to ask. I hope that you enjoyed that last podcast with Matt Light. New England Patriot Hall of Famer, 11-time NFL veteran. I know that I enjoyed it. Uh, It was really fun for me just to be able to talk a little football with a professional football player and also the Tom Brady of turkey hunting story, which if you have not watched that video, guys, it is on the Facebook group, the North American Waterfowler Facebook group over there on, on Facebook. So go and check that out. But today I am bringing on Captain Ruben Perez, who has been a long time sea duck hunter on the Atlantic coast, Atlantic flyway. And so he is a guide and he has been guiding sea ducks out there. I think he said since the mid eighties, he's one of the original captains guiding for sea ducks in that area. So I've already recorded this episode. It was a great opportunity for me to educate myself. I mean, I know of sea duck hunting. I know some minor basics of sea duck hunting, but certainly um, it's not my thing. I've never even seen a sea duck. So this was a great opportunity for me to be educated and pick his brain. 
and just talk all about sea duck hunting and the migration on the Atlantic coast and whatnot. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. We're going to jump right into that. But before we do that, don't forget the partners. Final Approach, FABrand.com, 10% off FDH10. Motion Ducks Decoy Spreader System. Get motion on those non-wind days. Kill more birds on those days, I promise you. Ever since I've been using it, I kill more birds on days where there's not much wind. And Onyx Hunt, the number one app for tagging your places and many, many, many more. There's a cool feature on there where you can set a location that you think the wind is ideal. And when you set it, you'll get a little indication of this is an ideal day based on the wind for this location that you pinned. Really, really cool stuff on X Hunt. So we're going to get into this um, here just a second. I'm going to be coming the next episode. I'm going to tell all about my snow goose hunt that I went on with Jeremy and Aiden and myself last weekend. I'm working on this video. I've been working on it today. I'm not sure when it'll come out, but man, what a waterfowl viewing experience this was. That is the main thing I love about snow goose hunting. I Snow goose hunting for me, I'm not an avid snow goose hunter. I don't own socks. Aiden owns about a thousand. But what I love about February and March is maybe two or three times getting to go on snow goose hunts. And I don't view it as like when I go duck hunting, my goal is to shoot limits. If I don't shoot limits, it's not the end of the world, but that is always my goal. With snow goose hunting, I have a much different state of mind. Snow goose are such incredible birds in the way that they flock together and thousands and thousands and thousands of them and then the, the, the audio spectacle that they are. When you can get yourself up close to 30, 40, 50, 100,000 snow geese, it is Oh my gosh, it is just a miracle from God. And that's what happened on this hunt. I'm going to tell all about it on the next episode. But man, it was a viewing spectacle. And we saw a duck feed about a mile away like I have never seen before. Widgeon and Pintail just funneling down from the heavens. What a weekend it was. I'm going back out this weekend with Aiden and Matt Bocci. I'm so excited about that. So I'll talk more about that on the next episode. So be ready for that. But let's go ahead and jump into this with Captain Ruben Perez. Hello, today I am joined by Captain Ruben Perez, who is a longtime sea duck hunter on the East Coast, has a guide service. So today we're going to talk with him about sea duck hunting, and and he's going to fill us in everything that you would need to know for sea duck hunting because I, I don't know anything. I barely even know what species is shot. So let's go ahead and bring him on now. Captain, how are you doing tonight? Great, Elliot. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule and coming on here and talking to all of us. Let's start off by you just give a little description of um, your guide service, where you're located, um, what you got into guiding, and a little bit of background of your whole business there. Roger. Um, so the name of my guide service is East Coast Guide Service. I am located in Massachusetts, uh, and I hunt out of Cape Cod area. If people look at the map, they'll see that arm that sticks out, all that water there. I hunt it all, from Boston south to Rhode Island even. 
<clears throat> I go where the birds are. I mean, it's something that they're, you know, because they were there last year or they were there last week. It doesn't mean it's time, they're going to be there tomorrow. It's one of those things you need to keep up with it all constantly. And, uh, you know, it's, I've been doing it for a long time. I have a master's, uh, 100 ton license by the United States Coast Guard, which is what you need if you want to take people out for hire. Hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, a lot of guys have six packs. I, I decided to go a little further. <laughs> uh, it's just, I, it's just how I am. I'm <laughs> anal, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, it's, it, it's, it's been a, it's been a great thing. It was a natural progression. I, I love duck hunting. I, I loved this since I was, uh, uh, eight years old where my dad used to take me out. And just one thing led to another. I mean, we weren't very good hunters at the time. So, how did you? Because you said that you originally started your duck hunting career with your father, and you were kind of chasing puddle ducks. How did you turn into such an avid sea duck hunter? And and at what point did you decide that you could possibly do this as a, as a career? We hunted the bays. I we I was originally from New Hampshire, and up there we have the Great Bay. And uh, there were there weren't that many eiders at the time, but there were some scoters, and we uh, started hitting the saltwater through that. And then uh, uh, I I'm, I used to be a journalist. I used to work for newspapers. I, I would take pictures, so I would work for the Boston Globe, uh, Providence Journal, and whatnot. So I moved a lot around my career, and wherever I went, I was always looking for duck time. I mean, that was number one for me. And um, mm-hmm. when I came to Rhode Island back in 1984, I believe, um, I already had been duck hunting, sea duck hunting for quite a while. And uh, I started looking around, and sure enough, you know, there was a lot of birds in those days. It was just unknown. People just didn't know. It was never publicized um, in magazines, or in, you would never see a TV show about sea duck hunting. As a matter of fact, I think the first see that kind of TV shows you've ever seen were uh, put on by Mossy Oak when they used to have the uh, Whistling Wings uh, uh, series. Um, Fred Zink, he's a, who's a very good friend, mm-hmm. uh, he, he and I, we were talking about one time, I said, Freddie, why don't you uh, do a thing on sea duck hunting? I mean, it's just crazy. And he, he threw it past the boys over in Mossy Oak, and they said, yeah, let's do it. And he uh, came up and hunted with me. I was guiding at the time, and uh, little by little, Step by step, it started to become popular. As far as how I did it, I mean, I, I, I let, if it's a duck and it's legal, I'll chase it and I'll hunt it, you know, and I, and I'll figure out a way to cook it. Uh, right. People say sea ducks don't t- taste very good. That's, that's not true. You just need to cook them right, you know. You can ruin a, a yearling dough if you don't cook it right. Mm-hmm. So down here in Massachusetts in Rhode Island, it wasn't a big thing so there were very few actually there were no guides there was only one guy that i knew about in massachusetts pat casey and that was man that was ages ago the only guys you would find would be up in maine that's where sea duck hunting was big you know people always correlate eiders and maine maine eiders they even call them you know it's an anonymous name maine eiders uh just like uh arkansas is for greenheads and california you go for the pintails and in your neck of the woods, I'm not sure you guys go for everything. <laughs> so, um, yeah, right, right. Having been in the publishing business, I started writing for magazines, hunting magazines such as uh, Wildfowl, Waterfowl Hunter, uh, Outdoor Life. I mean, se- several 
several magazines. And I tried promoting um, the fact that there's great sea duck coming up here. But, you know, the editors were a little leery because they always had that grid. You know, they wanted, if you're going to do a sea duck story, you got to do it for Maine. So here I am. I'm leaving, like, Bonanza of sea duck hunting. And I'm going up to Maine to do a story up there, which is, it was bizarre, you know. And um, <laughs> I just I just started guiding. It was a natural progression. It seemed like it's something that people enjoyed doing. And I started slow. And uh, um, then it became known. Word of mouth is an amazing thing. You know, people would call me up. I want to go hunt some niters and see that. And this is before the 41, you know, the Quest 41. Those two genes came up with that idea. Uh, right. It was around. Now it's like everybody wants to have to have, you know, one of every species in North America because they need to they need to hit all the all the buttons and all the right um, things there. But so, you know, I just I enjoy doing it. I provided a service for people because it's not an easy hunt that you can do on your own. Uh, you have to have the right amount of equipment, the big boats, uh, the decoys. All that is extremely expensive just to do it once or twice in a season. So most people don't want to bother doing that, so they, they had to hire a guide. Mm-hmm. And then I threw, little by little, I threw in layouts and, and whatnot. And that m- more stuff, more more expense, and people just don't want to go through that. But now, people are the big tin boats and and going out there and uh um you know they want to do it themselves but you know the ocean is a scary place sometimes you know so what is someone wanting to get into sea duck hunting what is the bare minimum as far as equipment you would need to go on a sea duck hunt all just as a public public land land freelance the ocean nobody owns it so um Right. If you're a guide, yeah. some harbors you have to pay extra money to launch your boats there uh, because you're doing a commercial thing. But most people, if it's a state ramp, you can just, you can just put in your boat and go hunt. Uh, there are regulations how close to a house you can be and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all written down in the laws. You know, people can just look it up. But the minimum that you need, I say you need a stout boat. You know, when I say stout, anything under 22 feet is not stout. You need, you need 22 feet and up. You know, mm-hmm. what's ideal? <laughs> ideal. What, what is yours? What's ideal size of 24, boat? 25 mm-hmm. foot boat, something with high sides. Um, I mean, I mean, sea duck cutting. I mean, what's what's the mm-hmm. first word? Sea. So you're, I mean, you're in the Atlantic Ocean where a lot of guys right. that come and do, you know, the freelancers, they don't realize that we have 12 foot tides in some places, some places five, some places six, but. There are some places you get 12 foot tides, and then you throw in some of these moon tides. Um, you know, all of a sudden, where, where there was water, there's no water. You know, so imagine running through there, and mm-hmm. you're looking at the charts. You know, you're thinking, "Oh, I got my GPS with charts on, but I'm okay." It says there's a rock right there, and all of a sudden, you're you're, you're looking at where the oh, I'm not close to the rock. Boom! You just hit the rock, and your lower mm-hmm. unit is gone, and all all that. And let's say throw some waves into it, and then what do you do now? You know, you want to have some good sides to it so the water doesn't come in the boat. I, I don't know anybody, any boat that's not sinkable. I mean, mm-hmm. remember the Titanic? Yeah. Right. How wide How wide is your boat? It's tw- my boat 24 is foot feet, long. Actually. How wide about? <laughs> 26. And, and what's the width on it? Good question. It's as big as, as you can legally put it on the road. So I would, I don't, 
96 inches, maybe. One of the widest oh, okay. you can have to put on the road legally to travel. That's, yeah. That's what it yeah. is. It is. Okay. So you need at least a 22 well, foot long boat with high sides. I mean, what I else? I, what I other equipment really would like you have to have? The, the aluminum boats, because they're, they're very light and they're complex. And you, I mean, they, they're also mm -hmm. a lot colder in the winter and you get pounded like crazy on, on big waves out there. I mean, I'm sure, you know, people go, oh, you know, my boat says, well, you know, look, mm -hmm. I've been on the water since, you know, since I was in my, you know, teens. I'm, and when I say the water, I'm not talking about a pond, a lake, or whatever. I'm talking about the Atlantic Ocean. And <clears throat> and there are days, yeah, right. on a sunny day, on a flat-ass calm day, you know, your 10-year-old your can be a great guide, you know, no problem. But what do you do when you get a squall all of a sudden comes up that was never forecasted? Or let's say you come down here and you've got a window of a week and, and all of a sudden they got these nor'easters and, uh, you know, real wicked winds and it's cold. You know, are you going to go out there? I have to go out every day. Every single day during the season, I'm out there. You know, except on Sundays. I, I try not to book on Sundays. But other than that, um, every single day, I'm there. So I can't pick the weather that's coming. Um, correct. So I so you have to be prepared for it. So, what size motor? What size motor um, I mean, whatever, is minimum is horsepower? I mean, wise you need to understand that if you're that you running have have. Uh, big decoys and you're doing long lines, you're using a lot of heavy weights. Um, then you throw into the fact that you know every guy mm -hmm. brings in you know a kitchen sink in their bag and and you know and uh, I had a guy I had a guy this season actually brought in a, a couple of uh, those heater that Mister Buddies. I said ah, no. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. It has to be strong enough to obviously get more motor than you think you're going to need. That's always been there. Like mine is a 300 horsepower on a yeah. boat. It moves 30 miles an hour. Okay. Easily. When I got six guys, I'm mm -hmm. talking about big Wisconsin guys, you know, and uh, and all their gear and all my gear and all the weight and all the water that's inside the decoys. Um, I mean, my boat probably weighs about 5,000 pounds. In, that, in a sense, the fiberglass and heavy boats give it stability. You know, there, there's boat builders out there that they, they claim, oh, yeah, mine's, you know, you can't put that against a rock. You can't you can't run it up on a rock. Well, I, I don't know anybody who wants to run a boat into a rock, whether it's a woman or not, you know. <laughs> it's like, we're indestructible. Yeah, yeah okay. You know, yeah. the Titanic said that too. You know, I this is crazy stuff. I mean, you, you come out here, right. and when it's nasty, there's waves crashing on those rocks. I mean, do you want to put a client up there and make them climb up that slippery rock in the dark with gear? And then they don't think about the tide, yeah. and all of a sudden the tide comes up, and they're, you know, they, they're looking at their $12,000 worth of camera equipment floating away. You know? So minimum, a good boat, a good stout boat. You need, need decoys, you know, uh, four dozen yeah. or more. Uh, so four dozen yeah, yeah. is kind of the minimum yeah. you would four want lines. to set up with. Yeah. Well, and what species are you species. using? So if I'm using, use? if I'm going for eiders, I mostly, I mainly put eiders. If I go for scoters, I mainly put scoters. Um, the birds mm -hmm. tend to want to be with their own kind. If I'm in an area, there's a mix. I'll put a little bit of everything, you know. So, uh, but somebody's just starting out. They're not mm -hmm. going to have that. That. And, I mean, that's the advantage a guide has. We've been doing it for a while, and, you know, we're able to buy all this stuff. I mean, at least I do that. Every year I, I replenish 
all my equipment, you know, because I want to have the best gear that that's possible to have. I don't want a client coming and saying, you know, hey, my decoys are better than yours. That's lousy stuff you got there. You know, you're asking people to pay money. you got to give them a good product. Right. <laughs> you change over no, all your I decoys and everything them. every year? I repaint them. Totally repaint them. Oh, okay. And I fix the ones that need to be fixed. Uh, I, you know, people, okay, so sea ducks, you're asking how it's about. Well, they come in low, low in the water, and they see your decoys from a distance away, and you, when you know they're coming, they're coming. That's that's where people think that they're dumb. They're not dumb. They just like to be with their own kind. They're very strong species-oriented. They want to go to their own thing. So they're coming. They're coming. And once they come close enough, you know, you shoot them as they're decoying in. Well, guess what? I've had people say, oh, I just smacked the heck out of that duck. And I'm like, no, shoot him again. Shoot him again. Well, the duck goes in the water. Now it lands near my decoy, and these guys are shooting at the bird that's on the water trying to get yeah. it in my decoy. You know? Yeah. So what are you going to do? You know, so you just repair. <laughs> that's what summer's for, repairing decoys and gear. Yeah. On the decoys, how, what? so when you buy – you buy the decoys, and I assume that you buy them. I don't know how how long you've been using and repainting them and everything. Um, you buy them, but how does the anchoring system work? Like, if I buy a dozen decoys, I'm just anchoring. You know, I'm putting an anchor on each uh, on each and every one. How does the anchoring system work, and what do you have to buy special for that? Yeah, that would take forever. Uh, we do long lines, and uh, the the long line system is the been devised way before I was started being, you know, duck hunting. Um, so everybody tends to take from the last few guys and, and make it their own, you know, but the, the reality is <clears throat> you put up, you put an anchor, you know, some people use bricks, some people use, uh, you know, uh, window weights, they, they use uh, uh, weights to, you know, you know, to work out. So you, you need a lot of weight because you get, you got currents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got you got tides. Remember the twelve foot tide and the six foot tide that I mentioned previously. Well, that water is going in out of these harbors and coming back out. So I mean, you got like rivers sometimes in some places. You know where it funnels right. uh, the water. So I mean, you need something to hold those decoys together. So you put an anchor to uh, attach it to a line. The lines attached to your first decoys, and then. <clears throat> You have a long line, you know, it's a trout line, like going catfish hunting, mm-hmm. you know, fishing, I should say. Um, each decoy has has a, a short line attached to them, and they have a clip on the end, and you just clip them as you go along. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that was the, the way that came about. That was from the long line industry of fishing for uh, tuna and uh, sailfish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, out here, we have... You know, Gloucester, I'm sure you've seen the movie uh, 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 Perfect Storm and all that. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if you watch that movie, you see these guys using those clips and attaching hooks to a long line that they put out. That line is like three miles long. Yeah. Well, those are the same clips I use. Okay. What I do, instead of hooks, I put decoys on and on and on and on. And when I get to the end, you know, then I, I, I put another anchor on the other end. Do, you, do the decoys yeah. come on and off after each hunt, or do they stay on the whole season and somehow you roll them up? It it, uh, it really depends what species I'm hunting. Most of the time, they come on and off. Every single hunt, you just with your boat, you well. First of all, how how deep is the water that that you're typically hunting in? 
Well, that's another reason why you don't want single lines because it could be anywhere from 10 feet to 80 feet, you know? So how do you, how are you going to adjust that if you have long, if you have single lines on each decoy? You can't have 80 foot line on that decoy and be sitting there and rolling it all day. Yeah. So what you, that main, the first thing you do is throw out that, that main uh, anchor. Once you get to the point where it no longer is going out because it's hit, hit bottom, now you start clipping decoys. And uh, so that gives you that versatility to hunt different depth of water. Mm-hmm. You also have to take into account in your mind, when you go there, you know, it's funny. I, I'll go to a place and I'll just sit there and I'll look at the water for a while. My clients are looking at, at me like, what's wrong with this guy? And, uh, I mean, we're in the dark, and I'm looking around. I'm just trying to get the feel of which way the tide's going, and I'm trying to visualize what it's going to be three or four hours from now. It's going to change. That water goes in and out of these harbors every six hours. Okay. So imagine 12 hours going in and out of harbor every six hours. So at some point, you're going to have high tide, and at some point, you're going to have low tide. Yeah. So you need to visualize. And... Uh, you know, I, I set out the decoys and, 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 and do it that way. Long line is the only way you can really go. I have so many questions that I don't even know where to go. This is, <laughs> I have so many <laughs> questions. This is also, like I said, I know I know nothing about this. So let's say you have an 80 foot, you're in 80 foot of water. How does, how much line do you have on those long lines just on a day-to-day basis? Do you vary the lo- the length of line? Like, as you're scouting, like, well, today I think we're going to be in 20 foot of water, so let me do this preparation. Or is you just have one long line, and it's how long, and that's just however deep you are, that's what you've got. No, well, I mean, 80 foot of water is rare. There's some a couple places that we hunt that. But I would say on the average, let's say it's 40, 50 feet. Uh-huh. Okay, so uh, what you do is... Um, you just have um, extra lines with uh, so you, keep to it. you know what I mean? Uh, okay, so you, you you have workout weights, you uh-huh. know, like a dumbbell. Right. You attach it to the, to the line. Now you throw that overboard, and that's going out of your hand. But in your depth finder, which is the most important thing you need, forget about the GPS and the chart and all that. That's not accurate. You know, I, I have seen so many people take out their lower units out here because they, they're following that like it's, it's gospel. Mm-hmm. It's not. The depth finder is the key. Mm-hmm. You need to know how deep you are. So if you know if your lines are 30 feet and you got 60 feet under you, you know you're going to have to clip another line to it to make it 60 feet. Okay. So clip another line to it. You throw it out. Once it gets to the end, now you attach another line to that same long line. And you line. just pull it right through your hands? Yeah. How do you do that when it's got clips attached to it? No, no, you don't attach. That, the clips are attached to the decoy. Line. Okay, so they literally just the line. It just clips onto the line. There's no, there's no clip. It clips on. It's just a straight line with an anchor on it. Well, you can do it like that if you know different depths. What I like to do, since I do vary my 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 depth, I I have extra lines in a bucket that just have those the, like dog clips mm-hmm. from a dog leash on either end of them right so the more i just keep adding to that main first line that i threw overboard and then when i get to the point that it's no longer pulling out of my hand now i can start adding decoys okay so the the line has no clips on it what keeps the decoys from sliding up and down on the line or can they freely slide up and down on the line the decoys well those clips are strong and they they clip tight to the line 
Okay. Right? So you got you got the decoy here. You got the keel. From here, you put a, a line about thirty six inches long. The you know the, the reason why we do it like that is to fuse dogs, or sometimes you want to run your boat through the through the reg. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about you know catching the the long line that's way down here. Mm -hmm. So you put a dropper line here, and that dropper line is what has those clips. Gotcha. On it. Okay. That that makes sense. Then what goes on the end of the line? Is there something you got an anchor on one side? Is it some type of flotation device on the very far end of the decoys, or the decoys is just what makes them float because they're decoys, and the line floats because the decoys. The decoys float. The decoys float in the middle, and you you have an anchor in the front and an anchor in the back. You can't let them loose because the tides will. Oh, mess and them they'll up. move left yeah. to right. So you've got to anchor both ends. So you have a big Correct. like bow. Correct. Oh, okay. Correct. Okay. That, that's a surf scoter, by the way. My father-in-law carved this years ago. Oh, beautiful. I mean, it's, it's an amazing of wood. He, um, he has the skills to do it. But that's one of the species that I hunt. Right. You know, uh, uh, eiders and, you know, scoters. They're, they're the, but they, it, that's the basic thing. It's, it's a hard concept of telling somebody about it, but just showing it, drawing it is a lot easier yeah. to do. I've got it in my mind now. It's it's clicked in. in my, the, I, I understand it. I was thinking the clips were attached to the line, but they're onto the decoys, and the decoys basically cinch onto the line. How, how, many, how many lines do you use then? Three different lines of decoys? Different. I mean, depending where we are, what we're hunting, when, you know, it's, it's just different. It's just it's something that Sometimes I use one. Sometimes I use four. Sometimes mm -hmm. I use six. I don't know. You know, it just—it really—it has a lot to do with location and how the birds want to work. What would be a scenario that you would see that you would say, "Oh, we need more lines for this hunt versus oh, we need less lines"? Just feel. I, just you know, and you just feel it because you've been doing it for so many years. I mean, pretty much. I mean, it's just experience will tell you you got to do something different. Mm -hmm. Move the boat, you know. Maybe put more decoys out. Maybe take out decoys. Maybe put too many. These birds don't really. Um, the, it's not like bluebills. You need huge rafts of two or three hundred of them. Mm -hmm. You know, what I use is big decoys. You know, so right. they see better. Right. Uh, from a, you need to understand out here, you always have swells, and then you add chalk to that. So you, it's always like two footers. You get a decoy that's small. It's, you're gonna now you see it. Now you right. don't. Now you see it. Right. Uh -huh. so, you, get a, you know it's gonna stay in there. It's it more all. important to have big decoys, big boats, and um, you know safety gear. You need you need radios. I even go as far as having EPIRB on my boat, which is a radio that you push the button. It's registered under my name with uh, the uh, United States Coast Guard. They know who. Whose EPIRB is going off, and they know that somebody's in peril. So hopefully they'll send the helicopter before right. we all turn blue floating in the water. When you're setting out the lines, do they go from the boat directly out? I, I'm, I'm envisioning one in the middle, two on the sides. Do they just go straight out from from the boat? And do you hunt out of – because I've seen like layout boat hunting. I've seen you talking about using skiffs. You Do you hunt out of your main boat and shoot out of that? Yeah, I hunt both ways. I hunt out of my main boat, and I'll hunt out of layout boats. So I don't like doing rock ledges for, for what I had mentioned before. You know, we get seaweeds on these rocks. To put a client out in the dark and make them climb a rock, it's like it, a you're, much. You're taking, yeah, you're taking chances on somebody hurting themselves. Um, 
and and I've heard horror stories of people losing their guns as they're trying to transfer over and mm-hmm. going in the water. I haven't have had it happen, but it just it's one of those things you don't need to do. If you have a good boat, my boat, the birds seem not to shy too much from it. <clears throat> They'll shy every boat after a while. I mean, they're, they're not stupid. If they get pounded, you know, uh, coming all the way down the Atlantic Highway, they you know after a while they do start getting a little stale. Mm-hmm. But you need to change it up and do different things, you know. Um, as far as how you put the decoys, you know what? The wind and the tide is going to basically tell you how to do it. You're not, you know, you can't sit there and, and draw a, a form of how, how you, you know, I always, I always chuckle when I see people doing drawings on how you should set up your decoys in accordance to where you're set up. Well, they obviously don't have tides mm-hmm. because the tide, you know, if the tide's going this way and the wind's going that way, I mean, the decoys are going to be like all over the place. So. It really comes down to a battle of, you know, where the, the tide is going to let you put those decoys. And you just try to stay near it. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. It, do you prefer a tide coming in versus out? Does that make a difference? Nah, no, I prefer morning. I mean, uh, the birds out here seem to die off around 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they fly all, all day, but not like the numbers that you want, you know. To sit there in, you know, in the hopes that you're going to get one more eider, you know, after you know, 10, 11 o'clock, it's, it's pretty difficult. See, we don't have boat traffic, and that tends to be the key, you know, to have birds always moving. Mm-hmm. I, we don't have that many hunters out here. <clears throat> At least the places that I hunt, I try to stay away from people. I don't really like having uh, people too close around me because, they, you know, he's just, it's, it's an uncertainty, you know. I mean, uh, I'm tr- trying to provide a service to people that pay good money. I don't want to deal with other people's... Uh, um, you know, lack of knowledge to, to worry about, you know, right. and, uh, do, do you use motion decoys of any kind, whether they be spinners no, or no. you don't need any of that for, for sea duck hunting? Uh, I tried it all. I tried, I tried spinners. I tried flag. No, I mean, it's, it's being on the X is more important than mm. anything else. So how do state how do state lines work, um, in the ocean? If you were to cross from state to state, are there any state lines that matter? Once you get on the ocean, or you just open go wherever you want? Find on, let's find the maps and the charts that you're at. Mm. But I, it's funny because I asked the game warden one time. I said, "What if I put in a ramp in Rhode Island because it's easier to get there?" But we hunt maps. He goes, "Well, if I catch you on Rhode Island, I'm assuming you're hunting in Rhode Island." Huh. So, right. So if you come that, back with a bunch it, of birds and you're in Rhode <clears> Island, <throat> he's going to expect a Rhode Island tag even though you may have not been hunting in there yeah exactly so you better make sure that they're open for those species because massachusetts and rhode island don't open the season at the same time Mm -hmm. they stagger them different ways you know uh the brand as well i mean so yeah you have to be careful you have to know your 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 laws i mean i'm man regulations is the main thing Mm mm-hmm you know, saying you didn't know, it's never going to work. Yeah, you know, sorry, no... you didn't know. <laughs> okay, you're all right. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't do that. 
Oh, what is this? A wound? Oh, boy. You know? <laughs> so, other than, is it Eider and Scoter? That's, is that the bulk of what you harvest? No. I, 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 Eiders. All three Scoters. The White Wing, the Surfs, and the Commons. Mm-hmm. Uh, old Squads. Um, old Squads, you know, some people know them as Longtail. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so, Brant, Black Ducks, and... You know, I hate to admit it, but some of my clients like shooting buffalo heads, and I let them do it. Right. You know, but buffalo heads got a thing about buffies. You know, yeah. it's like you're admitting you didn't, do, you didn't have a good day, so, so you're shooting something, right? Right. Yep. <laughs> uh, and we have other puddle ducks, but I mean, this is not where people come for puddle ducks. You yeah. know, they come here. They're looking. They're looking mainly for the sea ducks where they can't get anywhere else. So, what is I the mean, most I desirable? Do... Give me list me the in order kind of of importance of what you would like here you know you've got people really prize the pintails canvas backs then mallards we never see black ducks here that's kind of would, would kind of be the order of importance of like people would be really excited to shoot what what how does the sea ducks lay out eiders number one are there different types of eiders they are um once in a while we get a king eider out here but that's uh, rare that's uh-huh. You know, if somebody says to me, "I want to shoot a king eider," I say, "Don't, don't come here. Mm. Go to Iceland or go to go to uh, Alaska." Okay. Uh, but I have had seventeen shot in my boat. That I don't know anybody's had that many eiders shot in their boat. Nice. But I have had clients. Seventeen of them have shot uh, king eiders in my boat. Some really nice ones. I mean, that's it, it, that's if you see my logo, it has all the five, all the the species. You got the uh, the white wing, the surf. The white wing scoter, surf scoter, common scoter, the old squaw, the eider, and the king. That's because I I, I had a I had a group of uh, clients from Wisconsin, I believe, about five six years ago. They came down in two hours of hunting. We had all those birds decoy in, and they shot them. That's what you call a royal slam. Okay. You know I mean? A northeast slam would be the one without the king eider, but a, uh, a royal slam, you know, they all drakes obviously. It can't be hen. It has to be, you know. It had to look like the king eider that people expect to see. It looks like like that. Yeah, that one that I got. Right. <clears throat> and we did it by we were sitting in the in my big boat anchored, and they all decoyed right in. We didn't all of a sudden say, "Hey, you know, we're close to a royal slam. Uh, let's uh, unanchor and go run down." There's a king eider that I know about. After speaking, mm-hmm. the clamor told me, you know, <laughs> I actually heard that happen up in Boston. You know, so it's like. Yeah, I wasn't there, so I can't say, yeah. you know, but I mean, it, you know how it is. Sometimes some stories have legs to Absolutely. them, you know. So, um, uh, I mean, thing. And then and then you get the black ducks in the brand. I mean, out here, we're, we're very fortunate that we get so many different species that it's, it's, it's a place that a lot of people want to come and basically get all those checked off their list. Yeah. You know, I've had clients come out here like with, with a list about this long. Look, you know, it's almost like I feel like I'm at a restaurant. <laughs> you know, they want to, you know, a side of old squaws, the main course, you want the item. Yeah. You know, Times to bring me a scoter or two, you know? At 9.30, I would like to shoot a king eider at 9.45. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's my life right there, yeah. <laughs> um, how does the migration work for, for sea ducks? Where do they... Um, nest. Where do they hatch? And and what uh, is it all weather based? And 
And how, how does the migration work with them? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they're, they're mostly from Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, these birds, we have local eiders, nesting eiders here, but the main bulk of the birds that we shoot, I shoot, tend to be Canadian birds. They're nicely plumed out. They got those beautiful colors that you see that you want, you know, the whites and the blacks and the beautiful uh, lobes on their faces. Um, I know this through a lot of, a lot of banded birds that we shot on my boat. Most of them seem to be Canadian birds. Mm-hmm. But Maine, Mass, and Rhode Island has uh, some nesting items. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say it's something that, you know, you want to write home to your mother about. So mostly Canadian birds. And same thing with scoters. They're all they're all up in Canada, and then they all of a sudden. I don't know if it, it has to be. It has to be weather. Something has to trigger them to start coming down. But back in the day, about six years ago, we used to be able to hunt 106 days. Now it's only 60, and they have to follow the duck season. But in those days, we could hunt uh, in October, first week of October, and we, you know, we're covered up in October. And the eiders, you have to wait a little bit if you want them nicely plumed out, you know, and you have to wait until about the first week of November. Now it's not an issue anymore. You only have December and January that you have to get it done. So all these birds are plumed out. They're all in nice condition. Um, unless some local ones, you know, come in and they tend to look a little dirty. But uh, I, I'm assuming that's, that's what it is. And they start coming down. And, man, I'll tell you, they Maine has lost a lot of their eiders uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, the eiders, for whatever reason, have decided to come down here to Mass and winter up in here. Um, my assumption is that up there they had a, a very, very strong commercial uh, um, uh, uh, community of shell fishermen. And, you know, you take their food stores away, you know, what are the birds going to do? They're going to go find new sources. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what's happened. But mostly they come down here and they winter up in Mass in Rhode Island. You'll get a handful maybe that will fly down to New York and New Jersey, but I mean, for you know, this guy's saying, "Oh yeah, we shoot eiders." Ah, uh, yeah, okay. You're shooting some that maybe it got lost and uh, you know hit a storm or something. But this is this is where you want to be. Now the scoters are different; they'll continue further south. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll go to Maryland and and uh, Carolinas. Uh, the old squads now the old squads are in, in in the Great Lakes. You know, so they they kind of expanding around. <clears throat> where where do they what's their nesting habitat where do they actually make have their nests and, and hatch they're in islands they're in in, in, in barren islands and you okay know, they go up there and you know they try to make a little nest somewhere hidden in rocks and they're very susceptible to predators you know the foxes and the uh mostly seagulls mm-hmm. they tend to predate a lot on their eggs so, so it's, it's a offshore on just little outcroppings of rocks and and things like that Correct. okay that, that's really interesting. Yep. What, what are the population status of of ducks right now? Are they up? Are they down? How's what's the long term outlook? Nobody, nobody knows. The United States Fish, Fish and Wildlife doesn't hasn't done a serious study in years, so that's they odd. have no idea. That's odd. I think. Well, it, it, yeah, it is odd. I think. I think most of the the. I, I'm I'm going to get people really angry at me for saying this, but I think most of their their their. Um, Temperature taken of what the status is going on the birds is, is is what they see on uh, online on Facebook on Instagram. Really, you know, they see with piles of birds like myself and other people, and they think, "Oh my God, they're killing all our birds!" You know, and uh, I mean that happened a few years back, and you know when they they sent out a plane and they couldn't find them, and, and they they found out that they were down here in Massachusetts. So 
They're not in the traditional location, mm -hmm. so it's got to be a problem. No, the birds are just shifting and moving, just like the mallards now. I mean, uh, I mean, what do you hear from Arkansas? I think, uh, is that still the capital of uh, the Greenhead? A lot of complaining is what you hear from Arkansas. A lot of complaining. <laughs> they're all yeah. coming up to Kansas to hunt is what they're doing. Um, well. How do they set season yeah. dates if they have no idea of the health of the population? They just do it. Because you said it used to be over 100 days, and they cut it to 60 with no data at all? Well, I mean, I, I guess they claim they had data. I, I've, you know, I, the stuff that I read. I mean, remember this. I used to, I used to write about these things. Yeah. You know, you ever see the forecast that you see about, you know, the breeding pairs and the ponds and this and that? I, I was the the journalists. They used to do that for some magazines. Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hate to. I, I got my theories, but it's just theories. Unless I can. You know, have solid proof that that you know what my theories are. I don't want to really put it out there for for right. uh, general. Well, I mean, you you guys can read the lines, you know. Right. I mean, it's far, the last study that they've done on nighters was 1995. Wow. So, from what are you you started hunting uh, sea ducks kind of mid 80s? How do you feel about the populations? Do you feel like there's more now than there was or less? Are you concerned? Um, what, what, are, what are trends just as far as you're experiencing? You're out there every day of the season. I think guiders like Turkey have gotten smart, and they tend to shy off a lot of boats. So they, they, they have gotten pounded hard, so they, they've developed uh, that instinct to just to stay away from people. Mm -hmm. The layouts they're susceptible to layout. That's why a lot of these guides are using layouts mm -hmm. specifically, including myself. I don't, I, sometimes depending on where I am, I want, I want to have my clients have different experiences. Right. I hunt the same place twice. I usually, you know, we hunt here today, we're going to go someplace tomorrow and then someplace else. Uh, but this guy's just pounding the heck out of the birds in the same spot over and over and over again, you know? So they get smart. I mean, if you were getting shot at every day, every time you crossed, you know, went by a neighbor's house, would you go near that neighbor's house anymore? Right. Yeah, so that's what's happening. So they get smart, and uh, so they moved. They moved to areas that they're harder to reach. I mean, I know places that there are thousands. I mean, they, they look like bees. I got videos of it, you know, and they just out there in the open water. They just don't come in anywhere close that you – you know, you're safe setting up for a hunt when it's bad weather. You know, you can only reach them on certain special days. So you feel like the population's healthy? I wouldn't, yeah. I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, yeah, see, healthy is, is, I haven't seen that much of a change. Okay. Other than the fact that they're not in the traditional places we usually hunt them. Like, let's say I used to hunt Harbor A. Mm -hmm. I used to, thousand eiders there well that harbor a right now doesn't have any more eiders well guess what they were doing commercial clamming there so and you have draggers out there taking their food so they moved to another place so if i only knew and only saw that one spot i would say oh my god the birds are gone mm -hmm. since i hunt and move around a lot and scout i mean every day after i finish hunting my clients will go have lunch I'll get in my truck and I'll start scouting. Yeah, I don't get home till dark, you know. And um, you know, other guys they're going, you know, they can't wait to go post on on Facebook, you know, to look how look what I did, you know. And I'm like, 
you know, no, I want to, I, I worry about how my, how my clients are going to do tomorrow. Forget about how I did yesterday. Yeah. So I start looking at, and you find them. If you, if you search around a lot, you do find them. You know, like I said, remember, I don't hunt the same place, uh, Two days in a row. So you scout by truck with binoculars. I'm, I'm, I've not, I've never been to the East Coast, but I'm imagining all of the shoreline is just houses, businesses. Um, yeah. And yeah. so how do how how do you go about scouting them? You just drive well, the roads I, that are as close to the ocean as possible and, and glass. Well, when I can, I glass. But a lot of times you just go to a ramp and just put the boat in and take a okay. ride. Okay. Most, I would say, eighty percent of the time, I have to take a ride. Mm-hmm. So. Why do they congregate in certain areas? Is it because of food source? And, and what is, it seems like you implied that they eat um, mussels. Yeah, they eat, yeah, that's what they do. They eat mussels. Is that their number one food so, source? Yep. Yep. I mean, they'll eat, they'll eat lobsters. They'll eat uh, other, you know, they're, they're, they'll, they'll eat other things. They'll prey on other things. But the number one thing that they want is mussels. How do they crack, they how do they get through the shell? They, what they do is they swallow it whole. Really? Yeah. yeah the muscle has to be something about the size of your na- thumbnail. Uh-huh. They swallow that whole, and they'll swallow a bunch of them. Uh-huh. And then, you know, in their gizzards or whatever, they get crushed in there. And, you know, the meat and whatever, it gets digested. And if you see, <laughs> if you ever seen uh, an eider poop, it's it's little pellets of muscles, you know. It's it's, it's crazy. The shell, they're they're like crapping a, out the shells. Well, yeah, they, yeah, they poop out the shells. Yeah. So they've got but the grit crop. in their crop that just grinds. So they're eating small muscles, small. Correct. Okay, real small ones. The the grit in the crop, which they probably pick up off the bottom at times during the day, um, little rocks and what have you, and it just crushes it in there. And that's fascinating. I had no idea. No, they're amazing birds, but see, that's the other issue that comes up. Those muscles don't stay the same size. They take it bigger and bigger and bigger, and now the eiders can't swallow. Mm-hmm. So when people say, oh, I know where he hunted uh, last year. This is where to go. Uh, maybe, but those muscles have grown. So those birds have shifted and went someplace else. How far down can they go? How far down can they dive to get their food? Well, the eiders tend to go from zero to you know, 30, 40 feet. Wow. The scope is like deeper water, you know, uh, 30, 45. And the old squaws probably will feed on to 90, 90 feet or oh so. Oh, my gosh. I, imagine the amount of energy it takes for them to go yeah. 90 feet to the bottom. How do they even visually see what – at 90 feet, wouldn't the sunlight be pretty dim? Or is it still – I would they're and, and it's Yeah, in the winter, the water is a little less cloudy, but – I would think, yeah, they're amazing birds. I mean, it, it, if you want to hunt old squaws, you got to go to the deep water. That's that's a known thing hmm. because they like deeper water. They they'll be, but the eiders they can be in shallower areas. No, it, they are amazing birds, and I think that's one of the reasons why they fascinate me so much and why I target them. Yeah, you know, um, it's um, yeah, it's a it's a love uh, love relationship that I have. I don't I don't hunt when I got clients on the boat. I haven't brought a gun on the boat for years, mm-hmm. so I don't, I don't, I don't kill myself. I don't need to. Yeah, uh, I let people enjoy the hunt, and the guys that I have, a lot of them, they just they're targeting the birds that they want, and some will stop once they got that bird. You mm-hmm. know, they don't have to pound the heck out of the limits. You know. Yeah, and that's that. 
know, they're uh, trophy yeah, hunting more than any or species hunting or trophy hunting more than anything. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think what has pushed that a lot has been that you know chase for the forty-one North American. You know. Yeah. Uh, I had Mark. Uh, um, he's like just blanked out on his name. Oh, Mark's gonna kill me. But he uh, he did all the forty ones in one season. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He, he and it was during COVID. It was that year of COVID too. That's disposable and, income right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, he yeah, I guess he worked. <laughs> but he he hired me to. He had hunted with me many years ago, and he um, uh, you know, he told his, the guy that was arranging the hunt for him to. Make sure you get Ruben because he's a killer. Uh, is that good? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, that as far as I can tell, that's the number one compliment a waterfowler can give another waterfowler is to call them a killer. That's yeah. compliment okay. number one, as far as I can tell. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'll take it as good. Yeah, and, yeah. He came. He came with a long list, but we started with a long list. By the time he got to me, he only needed two or three birds when he was here, and I, you know, no problem. I got him his brand in five minutes, mm-hmm. and then we went to get the bluebills the next day. And, and then he had an issue that obviously Alaska was closed for the king eider, mm-hmm. so he it looked like he wasn't going to do his quest after all the effort and money he spent. So I tried to get him a king eider down here. I had heard I, I knew an area that one hangs out a lot, so we went on the third day to look for it, but the thing was not there. Mm-hmm. Even though I had a friend photographed the day before, you know, I was hoping to get Marcus King here. But he uh, he had to go to Iceland to do it. So. Wow, I bet that's that sounds like a fun season of waterfowling. Yeah, I'm just gonna run over to Iceland to get myself the king eider. <laughs> that's yeah, that's a blessed life. You know, these birds you're talking about are just sound so magnificent. And I know we had talked about this a little bit off air before, as far as the tie into spirituality and a lot of duck hunters. Not all duck hunters, but I find a lot of duck hunters find so much closeness to God just watching the magnificence of wildlife. In fact, um, it's, it's a known, it, this is a known truth that the more, the more you live in a big city, the less spiritual you are. And the more you're connected to nature, the more belief in God that you have. And I just find it for most people, it's very, very difficult to sit out in wildlife day after day after day and just see something like a bird be able to dive 90 feet down in murky water and find food. Just things like that you start to piece together, and I look at them, and, and I draw one conclusion. These, these are complex organisms. I mean, the, the amount of chemistry it takes from a bird to go from the gestation, through the egg, through everything, all of the encoded DNA in their body, I personally cannot look at that and think the most reasonable solution to me is there is there is a God. And I know that you are a spiritual man. Talk, talk a little bit about connections you see through your duck hunting and, and your belief in, in Jesus and God. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm, I'm in total agreement with you. I mean, how can somebody look at all that? How can somebody look at a beautiful sunrise or, or all the elements that come together and say, hey, that just happened. Yeah. That was chance. Right. You know, and, and you know, you're, you're so right. It, I, I don't push politics. I don't push religion in my boat. But I do, I will ask the clients, hey, uh, are you guys, you know, God-fearing? And if they say no, I let it go. Mm-hmm. If they say yeah, then ask them, you know, what religion do you, do you follow? And, and then 
it's amazing how I would say 90% of my hunters are religious mm -hmm. and most of them are Christians, right? which makes it easy. I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, and yeah, it, you start talking at a different level at that point. The hunt becomes different. Yeah. It's amazing. I've had, I've had three really amazing hunts this year that that happened. And it's not about, you know, being a holy roller or a Bible thumper. It's just basically talking about, hey, can you believe that people actually think this just happened? Yeah. Can you believe that people think that, you know, that it was it all from an amoeba and it, it get legs and it went? No, it's impossible. Yeah. It's impossible. It was created by a God that, you know, had a plan, is all-powerful, all-knowing. And then, uh, you know, and then I can get into more basics with, you know, you know, being a Christian and why, you know, that works, you yeah. know. Uh, but I, <clears throat> I had mentioned to you briefly before. By the way, Mark Patterson was the guy who shot the forty-one bird. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> Got it. it was bugging me. Sorry, Mark. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, I had a, you know, I'll tell you how how duck hunting it has become very obvious since since I started to turn, you know, to Jesus and trying to live a, a better life, you know, being a better person, trying to be a little bit more, you know. Uh, respectful and more patient and uh um i mean what i do for work is stressful you do you, you deal with other other you know competitors you know whether they're guides or freelancers and or whoever or even the public that doesn't want you hunting you know they come out here and call you murderers or whatever i you probably don't have that in your neck of the woods but i've had it happen here mm. i'm in the east coast right so it's just like you know liberal haven here yeah and so I, I've tried, as I've gotten older, I've tried to, you know, be more, you know, spiritual. And uh, um, anyhow, I had a friend, I, I knew of this man. He was like, one, you know how there's some duck hunters that are really, really good? You know, like the 2% that you know, those are the killers, mm -hmm. you know. And, well, this guy was one of those guys. And he called me up. He never was a client of mine. He used to live in the area here. And I've always admired uh, his decoys that he had. He has a local car, two beautiful wooden decoys. <clears throat> he called me up and he said, uh, hey, I, you know, I live in Florida, but I want to, I'm going to be seeing my daughter. Can I come down and say hello, have coffee? And sure, you know, it'd be nice. And uh, he came up and I'll tell you, I never invite anybody to my home. You know, I, it's, it's kind of, it's my place. I don't want to worry sanctuary. about it. I was going to meet right. him. At, yeah, it's my sanctuary, correct. And something about it, I said to him, you know, Mike, why don't you come over to my house? You know, and he came. We had a good time. Talked for two hours. I like cigars. I like, you know, smoke a cigar. Talk about duck hunting. And anyway, all that stuff. So it came to the time. He, you know, he's going to head out. A nice visit. And we get to his truck, and he says to me, uh, all of a sudden, it's just so really weird. He says to me, hey, can I come and hunt with you next year? One time. I want to use your my decoys. I want to hunt over for the last time. And I'm like, what do you mean for the last time? You know, what's the matter? Where are you going? What are you going to do? What? You're done? Goes, yeah. Oh, yeah. He has severe, two severe health issues. Mm. And <clears throat> I was like, oh, my God. So I said to him, hey, you know, are you, um, you believe in God? You know, and he goes, yeah. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And he goes, yeah. I said, uh, would you want to accept him in your heart as your Lord and Savior? He goes, yes. I said, say it. I want to hear you say it. And he said it. 
I say, you just got saved, you know? Right. You know, now you just go and try to walk that walk. I'm not saying you're going to be miraculously, you know, have a, um, you know, have all this go away. But what you're going to have now is I'm going to pray for you and you're going to pray for yourself. And you're going to ask to, to be restored. And it was funny because I said to him at that point, I said, can I, can I say a prayer for you now? And he goes, yeah. I, I couldn't get through it, man. I was bawling like a baby. I, I, oh my God, I couldn't get through it. I was like, oh Lord, you know, I'm so bad at this. You know, it's so emotional for me. And uh, we're both hugging. I, I understand this. I just met the man two hours ago. You know, mm. these two old guys are hugging each other. And I'm like, you know, I'm asking for restoration in his life and all that. And uh, and I, I told him straight out, I said, it doesn't mean you're going to have a miracle, but at least you're not alone Absolutely. at your darkest moment. Yeah. So, and I apologize to him for not being able to keep it together. I looked around my, I got woods around my house and boom, it hit me. It hit me like that. I said, you know, Mike, you weren't here to talk about ducks, were you? Goes, no. I said, you were here to get saved. <laughs> A week later, two weeks later, he went over to my church. He was visiting. Remember, right. we had a baptism. He went over and got baptized. I'm assuming that everything, you know, I mean, he, he's got a health issues, you know. Yeah. He went back to Florida, and uh, so I don't know what's going on with my phone here. There we go. My phone just gave me things saying low story. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, it just, I, I he started coming to my church while he was here. It was amazing. He made all these all these spiritual friends, you know, and everything was, yeah. was doing great. That is fantastic. So, fantastic yeah. story. Um, and, you know, people who are reluctant maybe to make that decision feel like, well, I've got to give up this. I've got to give up that. And the truth is, is that when you make that decision, everything else takes care of. It takes care of itself because your desires change. Your desires change. It's not, it's not difficult. I, I, I spent half of my life doing whatever I wanted to do. And then after a horrible divorce, I was like, all right, this is it. I can't do this by myself. I, I can't make, I suck at making decisions. I can't do this. I'm like, okay, God, I, I am yours. Make the decisions, lead me. Everything else just fell into place. I mean, giving up the, the getting drunk all the time and, and, you know, those types of things that was not an issue. It just, I became a different person and it wasn't right. like I had to, my, my, my desires and my wants changed. And so now <laughs> I've got two parts of my life. I've got kind of half of about up to about 35 where I would say I believed in God most of the time, but I was, you know, kind of did, kind of didn't, depending on the day. And and then I've got half of my life where I was just like, okay, I'm taking this for 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 serious, for real. And I can I can compare the two parts of my life, and I know how right. how I felt, my decisions, my peace, everything in those two splits are completely different. And that's all that's all the information I need. If it's not true, which I believe it is, if it's not. I'm still a better person and living a better life because of it. But I believe that it is true. And I've, I've cast those doubt demons aside 95%. But even let's say it's not true. I am so much better person and happier following these principles than I was before. No, it's totally, totally. I mean, I agree with you. It's just, I mean, with me, like you, I was always a spiritual person, but my, my biggest problem was trusting a, a leader. You know, I was, mm -hmm. I used to be Catholic. 
you know, I, I, I enjoy the Catholic faith, but, you know, it, all, all, re- all religions have issues, you yeah, know, and I need sure. to find someplace. And, uh, you know, I'm going to give a, a little shout out to Pastor Derek and Pastor Ken. We're very fortunate at the church that I go. We've got these two men that just, they, they speak the truth and they tell you, go to the scriptures. You don't have to listen to my interpretation. Mm. Go to the scriptures. And they, they, they're amazing. They're just, they're good shepherds. And uh, I think that's what I needed. I needed somebody I could trust. I'm not, you know, having been a former journalist and, and, and I, there's not many people I trust. It's almost like a police officer. We get to see the worst in people. Right. So you tend to not believe a lot, you know? Yeah. And uh, that was helpful. I mean, so much so that I went from zero, you know, I stopped going to church to now I go, you know, when you asked me to do the, the this recording, I he said Monday, I said, I can't, I go to church. Right. Uh, Bible. So I go to church Sunday. I go to Bible study on Monday, on Wednesday night, I go to the night service and it just continues like that. And I do other things in between. Because I love doing it, I just uh, I enjoy it, and it's the way to go, you know. But absolutely, it, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, I encourage anybody who's out there if they have doubts and uh, and, and 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 anxiety in their life that they really should seek out, seek out God because uh, it, it, everything that's good comes from Him. Jesus, Jesus is there. He gave His life for us because uh, He loved us. I mean, He He rose to show us that you know we, our sins were forgiven, and uh, you know. It, there is a place to go after we uh, we leave this earth. I couldn't agree more. And any of you, any of you that are listening, if if any of this conversation is touching you and you have questions or you want to talk, feel free to reach out to me on any of my platforms: freelance duck hunting at gmail dot com, freelance duck hunting on Instagram or through Facebook. Elliot Snyder. Don't hesitate if you're like you know I have more questions. I want to talk about it. I would be more than happy to have a conversation with any of you that have more thoughts or questions about the spiritual side of these things. So I think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up. Um, I I do have probably 30 more questions, but we could go on for hours and hours. But you've really done a great job of educating me uh, to that. I know now I have to go on a sea duck hunt at some point. I, that's, I have to. <laughs> if anything, just uh, just uh, just the whole process—it's mm-hmm. amazing, you know. Right. Well, um, go ahead and tell us one more time. Um, what is the name of your guide service? If anyone did want to come and hunt with you, how could they? How could they reach you? Yeah, it's East Coast Guide Service. They can Google that, or they can Google Captain Ruben Perez, or they can go to SeaDuckHunt.com. Um, and I also have Hotmail and Gmail at cduckhunt, um, and that's how they can do it. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I mean, you can see pictures, hundreds and hundreds of pictures of uh, clients that I've had in the past, and uh, you can get a good idea of what my hunts are like. I mean, I like to think that they're pretty good, you know, uh, but they can reach me that way. There's many ways. Fantastic. But, uh, hey, thank you for my friend yeah you know i I appreciate you coming on here and it's it's great to talk to a fellow brother who sees eye to eye with and and thank you for informing me and all my listeners on the ins and out of c.com hunting well i think we're going to wrap that up right there until next time you have listened to another episode of the north american waterfowler podcast